Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone, welcome to LawPod. My name is Rachel Colleen, I'm a lecturer here in the School of Law and I'm very pleased to introduce today's episode on Myanmar's ethnic politics, the Rohingya and other refugees. So the plight of the Rohingya is one that has drawn increasing international attention over the course of 2017. An estimated 600,000 Rohingya have fled Myanmar since August 2017, with the UN Human Rights Chief stating at a Human Rights Council session in December of that year that an act of genocide against Rohingya by Myanmar state forces cannot be ruled out. So it's against this backdrop that Queen's alumni Dr Kirsten McConaughey was invited to Queen's to deliver a seminar to the Human Rights Centre on Myanmar's ethnic politics. The event took place on the 24th of October and Kirsten very kindly agreed to record a podcast on the same topic. Kirsten is an assistant professor in Warwick whose work focuses on governance and justice in refugee situations. She has a particular regional interest in Southeast Asia and with refugees from Myanmar, having worked first with Karen refugees living in camps in Thailand and more recently with ethnic Chin refugees in Malaysia and India. She's conducted extensive field research in each of these countries and her first book, Governing Refugees, analysed governance and justice amongst Karen refugees in camps in Thailand. And this was awarded the Social Legal Studies Association Early Career Book Prize for 2015. In this episode, you will hear her interviewed by Colin Harvey, a professor of human rights here in the law school who shares an interest in the treatment of refugees. I hope you enjoy. Kirsten, very, very welcome back to, to, to Queen's. Uh, we're, we're talking today about the situation in Myanmar, and that's going to be the focus of our conversation th- this afternoon. I think it'd be really helpful if we could begin by telling listeners a little bit about Myanmar and its ethnic composition at present, just to provide a bit of background to the discussion we're about to have. Okay, so first, thanks for inviting me to come to Belfast and to do this podcast. Um, so I've been doing research on Myanmar for quite a few years. When I started my PhD at Queen's, I was doing research on Myanmar starting in 2007. And one of the things that people often don't really understand is it is very ethnically diverse. So Burma, as it was called, um, Burma, Myanmar, uh, the, the majority population is Burman, often called Bamar. But then there are many other ethnic groups as well, and the exact number of how many other groups there are is very contested. So there are eight recognised ethnic nationalities and then a government list of 135 ethnic races. And that list is very controversial, but one of the one of the relevant points about that list is that the Rohingya are not included in it. So they're not recognised as one of these ethnic races in Myanmar. And uh, the ethnic politics of the country have been complicated The Rohingya issue has come to the forefront at the moment, but there are also many parallel struggles between other ethnic groups and the Myanmar government. So the Karen, which are the ethnic group that my PhD was based with, they've had a a war of self-determination with the government since 1949. So it's the world's longest running insurgency, 70 years. And they've been on a provisional ceasefire for the last couple of years, and they're in this peace process with the Myanmar government. So that's kind of one of the, the political aspects that's going on in Myanmar at the moment at the same time as we have this emerging crisis with the Rohingya. 
Could you say, I think our listeners would value very much, you know, setting the context of what's been happening to the Rohingya in the last number of months. You know, we've seen a lot about it in the news and the media reports. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so it's really difficult to know where to begin with this. So the very immediate context, I think we can probably date in the past six weeks. So kind of August, September, early October 2017 is when we saw this outbreak of really mass violence by the Myanmar military against Rohingya villages in in Rakhine state, which is in the western region of Burma and it borders with Bangladesh. So the position of the Rohingya in Myanmar is that they, they claim to have a long-standing heritage in the country to have been present there for hundreds of years. The Myanmar government, the military and most Burmese citizens say that they are in fact uh, illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. So from their way of framing it, these people are not Myanmar citizens, they're not one of these recognised ethnic races, they're not recognised as citizens of Burma. Um, And so the immediate context of the recent violence was attacks by a Rohingya insurgency movement, the Armed Rohingya Salvation Army, um, which uh, attacked Burmese police and border guard outposts killing 12 people and that led to this military offensive which has been wildly disproportionate by any measure and it's seen hundreds of villages, the the language that's being used is scorched earth tactics and ethnic cleansing and and incredibly violent and, and terrible things that are happening in terms of human rights violations leading to I think the current numbers today are saying 800,000 people have left Myanmar for Bangladesh since this started in in late August. So that's the very immediate context, but there's a much longer backdrop to this as well. I think it'd be helpful for listeners really to hear more about the longer context and the broader background to some of this that you've just mentioned. Yeah, so I think um, if we, so focusing on the immediate violence obviously just sees this as a kind of disproportionate response to to what the Myanmar government would say is terrorism. So they're saying this is anti-terror policing. If you look even in the past few years, but certainly in the past few decades, there's been a systematic process of othering of the Rohingya in Myanmar, of this divesting them of citizenship within the country. So they were originally, in in the immediate post-independence years, the Rohingya were recognised as citizens of Myanmar. And it was the 1982 Citizenship Act that they were not included in this list of ethnic races so that they were no longer recognized as citizens and to be recognized as citizens they had to provide all sorts of documentary evidence that they had been present in the country since 1948. It made it really really difficult for them to establish this citizenship. Beginning in the late 1970s there were anti-immigration offensive very much aimed at the Rohingya in Rakhine state so that's when you first saw mass displacement of Rohingya from Myanmar to Bangladesh, a couple of hundred thousand were displaced in the late 1970s and really those are the, the sort of many of the people who are still in Bangladesh today since that point in the late 1970s there's been this continual process of targeting of the Rohingya and of phases of escalation and then maybe a quieter period, but always this continual othering of their position within Myanmar as a whole. So they're stateless, I mean, as they're not recognised as citizens of Myanmar, so they're stateless, but that statelessness then became the basis for other discriminatory acts, so making it impossible for them to have freedom of movement, they had to ask administrative permission to travel, they had uh, measures of birth limits imposed, so they weren't allowed to have more than two children per family. Lots of things that kind of followed from their statelessness, which were just about making their conditions less and less tolerable within Myanmar and with this real aim that they would leave. 
What about there's been a lot of criticism of the response of the international community to this? You know, what's your own sense of that? Yeah, well, the the role of the international community is kind of interesting in that the the escalation of, of trouble against the Rohingya has been worse since 2011, which is about the same period that Myanmar began liberalizing politically. So that's when we started getting this kind of good news narrative that Myanmar is now in transition, these conflicts are coming to an end, the country's really transforming. There were elections in 2015, so we now have a National League for Democracy-led government. Aung San Suu Kyi is the, the state councillor de facto head of the country. So, so from the international narrative, this was kind of seen as a real success story, that you had this almost regime change. The reality on the ground was much messier. The role of the military has remained much more um, influential and important than most commentators have realised in the West. So the UN has had a couple of contradictory roles in this. So the UN Special Rapporteurs have consistently been very strong, coming out with very strong reports, highlighting human rights issues in Myanmar. The UN mission in Myanmar is, is now being recognised as having really failed to address this problem with the Rohingya, and particularly the head of mission, who between 2014 and 2017 really didn't want any discussion of the Rohingya. So reports which were warning of a forthcoming tragedy were being suppressed. Uh, the special rapporteur was advised not to go to Rakhine State. All issues, all kind of attempts to really bring the Rohingya issue to the forefront were being suppressed, I guess, by the UN in Myanmar. Can you why that, what was going on there, you know, what was informing that? Yeah, well, we don't quite know yet. It's just been in the last couple of months that this is really coming to the forefront. And I think it was really this idea that the UN and the international community was just buying into this narrative of transition in Myanmar. And there are political reasons for that in terms of China's influence in Myanmar, which had become so important. And now the West, when it had an opportunity to stop sanctions against Burma was very quick to do so. And most most people probably think that trying to counter China's influence in Myanmar was a big part of that. So Western donor pressures have been, this is an opportunity to invest in Myanmar, to reduce Chinese influence in a kind of geopolitically important country, also to further their own economic and commercial interests in the country because it's a, a kind of open territory, it's new turf, it's offered all sorts of telecommunications, mining opportunities. So there was a kind of government and donor pressure to believe in this good news story of Myanmar. And the UN seems to have bought into that, that this narrative became Myanmar was changing and and the way to engage with it was as a question of governance and development and to engage with the areas where you could engage and and bring the country on in in the hope that human rights would develop, I guess, at a later point. So um, they were trying to emphasise the idea that the solutions to Myanmar were good governance and rule of law reform, and that human rights was becoming something to be maybe put to one side or, or not, not really. And, and the risks of that obviously are coming to the forefront now, because it was also, I think, that humanitarian question of access versus speaking out. So the Myanmar government had made it quite clear that engaging in Myanmar was conditional on, on their rules, of course, and any UN mission has to engage with the, the host government. It's there with their permission. So 
the UN position in Myanmar, I think, was just that they had to follow what the Burma government was willing to accept, and they were not willing to accept the discussion of the Rohingya. So, for example, the UN mission wouldn't use the word Rohingya. The US ambassador was asked not to use the word Rohingya. It was about calling them um, Muslims, Rakhine state Muslims, not recognizing this identity term of Rohingya. And so in those kind of ways, they just gradually became more complicit in the Myanmar government's approach. So they didn't use the term Rohingya, they didn't push for access to the IDP camps, they didn't challenge the government line on what was happening in Rakhine State. And they've been the culmination of that sitting back and sort of letting things get worse. Do you think there's a recognition of that now? I think it's starting to come out and the sort of news reports, there's a couple of journalists who've been really trying to bring this story out for a while and, and the, the language that's being used now is this is another Rwanda and the UN is, is kind of culpable in the same way that it was in 1994 about refusing to recognise something that was that was impending and, and the language of genocide is now being used um, sort of fairly frequently for the Rohingya, I think that's a... Interesting, Risa, very interested in your own views on that, you know, about those questions of discussions around classification of crimes against humanity and genocide. What, you know, what are your own thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the last six weeks have been a, a bit of a shock for me as well with this because certainly a couple, so the first people to start talking about what was happening to the Rohingyas genocide were probably in about 2014, 2015. And there was uh, an article written by a couple of people who've been very closely involved in Myanmar for a long time, and they called the situation against the Rohingya a slow burning genocide. And they were looking at the fact that the crime of genocide, obviously it requires the intent to destroy in whole or in part. Um, but it doesn't have to be the direct act of killing, it can be imposing conditions that would bring about the destruction of the group. And so the argument they were making in 2014-2015 was that the measures that had been imposed against the Rohingya for 20-30 years were exactly this. They were trying to bring about conditions which would make it impossible for people to live there um, and, and to destroy in whole or in part the Rohingya as a specific group. And so when that first came out in about 2014, I think I was still, I, I suppose in truth, a bit sceptical that that intent was really there. And I, I think I would have found it fairly clear that what was happening were crimes against humanity, that what you had were these widespread and systematic crimes against a civilian population. I wasn't totally persuaded or convinced that, that you had this real intent to destroy. And I think what's been happening over the, the last couple of months in the last couple of years has, has really made that intent clearer and I, I suppose now I'm much more inclined to think it's not only crimes against humanity but that you do in fact have that intent that might make this genocide. So. Okay and where do you think this is all going next you know in terms of that interaction between a sort of transitional society where there's a peace process where the Rohingya are as I understand, excluded from that process you know what are the next steps What's going to happen next? Yeah, it's very, it's kind of difficult at the moment because in one way you could see the Rohingya and the peace process as, as kind of separate entities. And I think that's what the international community was doing for a long time, that what was happening in Rakhine State was terrible, but what was happening elsewhere in the country had prospects for progress and that that's where they should be concentrating their energies and almost seeing the country as as divided into territories. This area is succeeding and transforming and developing and this area, well, we'll, we'll deal with that later. Um, and I think one of the things that's been clearer with what's happening in Rakhine State is that 
it's the culmination of these processes of othering of non-Burman ethnic groups and, and that's something that was also very apparent against the Karen and the, the other ethnic groups and which is still ongoing in, in non-ceasefire parts of the country against groups including the Kachin and the Shan. So there are still very active conflict areas where people are being persecuted and their ethnic identity is part of that. So I think it's becoming harder to see these the peace process as something that the government would really be committed to delivering true equality for the ethnic groups. So what they're engaged in and what they're hoping for is self-determination for their areas and, and kind of non-discrimination, equal treatment, an end to human rights violations, an end to militarization of ethnic states, some kind of control over their ethnic territories. And that's what they're hoping for from the peace process. But I think it's becoming much harder to believe that the government that's permitting these kind of things to happen in Rakhine State and which is still engaged in very violent offensives in other parts of the country, it's very hard to believe that that government's going to deliver this kind of ethnic equality in other parts of the country. So, yeah, I think it's going to be, it, I, I find it hard to see the peace process probably moving forward as people may have hoped a couple of years ago. So we're, we're thinking really about one very specific context, and I suppose there's, there's always risks in, in generalizing any particular context, but do you think there are, you know, lessons here? Are there, are there things that are emerging from this context that speak to bigger debates around statelessness, around forced displacement, and how the world is currently handling these issues? Yeah, I mean, it's very tricky always. I think you get very immersed in one context and you find it hard to, you see it as unique and, and special and find it hard to translate. But one of the things that I think is particularly striking with the Rohingya situation is that effectively the, the Myanmar government has achieved now what it wanted to do. You have 700,000 people who've left in the last six weeks combined with several hundred thousand who were already refugees or who had left. And that's just the Rohingya, that's not the other ethnic groups. So to an extent, they've got what they want. They've pushed these people out of the country. And the line of the government for a long time has been that these, the international community should take control of these people. They should resettle them. They should provide some response. So it raises really difficult questions about durable solutions, which I think probably are more widely relevant. And in terms, as you know, of course, the durable solutions in refugee situations are local integration in the country that you're living in as a refugee, resettlement to another country, or repatriation to your country of origin. So Aung San Suu Kyi has responded to this criticism of the, the forcing out of the Rohingya and said, okay, they can be repatriated, but the repatriation would be on conditions that are impossible for them. They'd be living probably in, in camps and the past experience has shown that they won't be safe. So repatriation is not an option. But either of the other durable solutions, if it's resettlement or local integration, will mean that the ethnic cleansing or genocidal intent has, has been achieved. So it's a really, I think it speaks to that problem of how durable solutions can be achieved in refugee situations, yeah. and particularly for stateless people. How yeah. do you find a solution that's going to work? Yeah. And is it, does it speak to bigger debates as well about, there's a lot of reflection going on in the world at the minute about the global refugee protection system and, and a lot of thought after the New York declaration and as to where this all might be going but does it also say something about the global human rights regime at the moment you know it, it's under quite a lot of stress not just in this context but all around the world right now and I wonder should it be making us think about international 
human rights law and the international human rights machinery and how, you know, so long after it's been put in place, you know, that it remains worryingly ineffective when it's called upon in this and other contexts. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, it's very difficult in terms of what an effective response would be here. So I think the if you like, the ideal response would be some kind of comprehensive plan of action like was put in place in the 1980s for refugees from Indochina, which was about taking a very large refugee population and providing resettlement in mostly the US, but also in a range of other countries. So some kind of comprehensive response like that could potentially be how the international kind of human rights machinery or international community could come into this. Um, but yeah, that's the, the, the problems of that are just so manifest at the moment yeah. in terms of political yeah. will or, or, or money or any of the things that are needed. So. Just listening to, you know, it's made, made me wonder about transitional justice and transitional processes and just thinking about that question about the peace process and whether it, sh- it should raise questions about both during a peace process, who's, who's around the table but also who's not at the table Mm. and some of the risks that if you do have a peace process where, you know, important parts of the jigsaw, if you like, are are not not part of those conversations. Is that an issue there, you think? Yeah, well, that's an article I'm trying to write at the moment is almost exactly on that, actually, about these questions of inclusion and exclusion in in peace peace processes, but particularly from the view of displacement, because you have with Burma The Rohingya situation is to one side in a way, because the way I usually explain it is that the other ethnic groups are trying to get out of Myanmar. They want some kind of autonomy and self-determination, and the Rohingya are trying to get in. They're trying to be recognized as citizens. So they have quite different claims and processes and also very different prospects of being integrated, if you like, within the country. So the peace process ethnicities and the peace process participants have been very much about the leaders of ethnic armed organizations meeting with the elite level politicians and the elite level humanitarian actors and civil society aren't being included and refugees and IDPs very much aren't being included even though they've got really active civil society organizations they've been really strong in terms of kind of managing conflict and managing their own conditions so I think it's been a huge problem for the for the integrity of the peace process that they've not been included. And it's also likely to be a huge problem for the success of any peace agreement because really big issues like displacement are just not really on the table yet. And there's this focus on the military issues and the kind of classic disarmament type questions and not at all on the bigger questions of how these kind of reintegration might take place. Well, I suppose my final question is that we're having this conversation on level nine of the new law school building and we're looking out over over Belfast and you yourself you've spent time here and you've written about the situation here do you think there are any lessons from what's happened here in Northern Ireland and in Belfast for other peace processes elsewhere in the world yeah it's tricky I mean there have actually been delegations of people from Myanmar to Northern Ireland and there's been that kind of transitional tourism where they've been taken to Colombia and Guatemala and Northern Ireland and there's been a lot of local criticism that you know they're off of to all these other contexts when they should be at home sorting out the the real issues of the peace process so it's kind of a, a contentious issue within Myanmar civil society about whether these transitional tours are really relevant. Um, So I suppose on one level it 
there are always things that can be learned. And I think those conversations are helpful for the people involved in the peace process because it reminds them that it can be done and that other people have, have been involved in this. So I think there is something to it. Um, but I do think there's a huge danger with the sort of people who sort of position themselves as lessons learned and if you go to Northern Ireland you can do this because the complexity of the peace process in Burma, I mean clearly here was very complex and difficult, but the complexity of what's going on there with dozens of ethnic armed groups all looking for different things, with a much larger population of 60 to 70 million, all of these kind of different issues of natural resources, environmental governments, governance, displacement on a huge scale, a whole region that's been involved of time Thailand, India, Malaysia, you know, it's it's on a different scale to what was happening here. And the depth of the the numbers of people who were killed and, and who suffered, it's, it's so, there are things that can be learned, but I think the complexity of Myanmar is its own unique entity. And there's been a bit of a problem with people trying to cookie cutter from one context to the other. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Kirsten. That's all my questions. I think you've really provided a you know, really genuine insight into what's happening, and I think our listeners will really very much appreciate it. Thank okay, you. thank you. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Colleen. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Colin Harvey and Kirsten McConaughey for this episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB Law Pod. And you can also find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen. This was Law Pod.